Alright, tonight we're going to come from Hebrews 12. And before we read tonight, I actually have two quotes. Uh, tonight I'm talking about focus. Focus. First quote is from Mark Twain. He said, you can't depend on your eyes when your imagination is out of focus. You can't depend on your eyes when your imagination is out of focus. Wayne Calloway said, nothing focuses the mind better than the constant sight of a competitor who wants to wipe you off the map. So the more tests and trials we have in life, it should be incentive to keep running harder. Keep on doing what we do. Hebrews 12, we're going to read verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read both versions because uh, we're so used to hearing it in the King James. And then I want to break it down from the Message Bible. It says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. You have not resisted unto blood striving against sin. That same passage reads like this from the Message Bible. Do you see what this means? All these pioneers who blazed the way, all these veterans cheering us on. It means we better get on with it. Strip down, start running, and never quit. No extra spiritual fat, no parasitic sins. Keep your eyes on Jesus who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how he did it. And that's really the phrase I want to catch. Study how he did it. Because he never lost sight of where he was headed. That exhilarating finish in and with God. He could put up with anything along the way. Cross, shame, whatever. And now he's there in the place of honor right alongside God. When you find yourselves flagging in your faith, go over that story again, item by item. That long litany of hostility he plowed through. That will shoot adrenaline into your souls. In this all-out match against sin, others have suffered far worse than you. To say nothing of what Jesus went through, all that bloodshed. Study how he did it. Focus. With the coming of Christ in the flesh came a burst of revelation of God. Much like the expansion of the universe when it was created by a solitary word from God. Having revealed his will to man and man disobeying it, adding to it, taking away from it and distorting it. Christ came to put all of the pieces back together again. So many things that were mysteries are now made manifest with the coming of Christ and the implementation of his redemptive plan for man. We have at the core of the Jewish faith a command to yield the totality of our being to our creator. Although he created this vast universe and placed man upon the earth, mankind is given a command in the Shema to center his primary focus on the one who created all things for his glory. As beautiful as the creation is, we are instructed to peer through the good and focus on the exceeding great. When he created the earth, he said everything was good. But he wants us to look beyond the good so that we can embrace the exceeding great, the El Shaddai. Over the years, such focus has been defined as tunnel vision, which extracts one primary focal point 
and blacks out all other surrounding images. In photography, however, this would prove for a rather bland and unappealing approach to capturing our most cherished moments. In order for us to see the beauty, there must be contrast. The pictures that we take have various signatures by the backgrounds and the surroundings in those photos. Although the subjects are the same in our photo albums, it is the surroundings which make the difference. If all of my photos were shot or developed with tunnel vision, I wouldn't know which photos were taken in Hawaii or which ones were taken at the local park. So I, need, I, I can't zero in just on that and extract the rest, but we want to be able to get the entire picture while all, although we have the entire picture, there is something in the picture that is centrally focused on. I hope y'all following me. To focus then doesn't mean to omit everything except for the primary object. It simply means that the object receives more definition than the surroundings. The surrounding can be identified, but when people see the photo, the subject stands out in contrast to his or her surroundings. Talking about focusing on Jesus. Modern religion, with all of its quirk and idiosyncrasies, have taught us to look at Christ with tunnel vision. But to extract Christ from the trials, tests, and temptations of our lives would take away the contrast. We need to look at Christ as being in the center of each picture in our photo album of life. We need to keep the wide angle shots to show and to record in our minds all of the things we've been through with Jesus, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Any good photographer likes to capture natural shots. These are not shots where the subject consciously prepares or braces himself for the shot. There is no photoshopping or cropping of the photo. So what you see is what you get. When I get my camera, a lot of people don't like when I have my camera because I just start shooting. But I get those shots that are just happen naturally. The Bible says in Revelation that they overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Sometimes we don't, ha we don't have time to brace ourselves. We don't have time to get ready for the shot. Sometimes when trials come, they just catch you in your natural habitat. All right, talking about focus. Many of us spend much of our lifetime doing photo touch-ups. We crop, we Photoshop, we recolor, we brush, we touch up our life experiences to present them to others. This is how we get to the, praise the Lord, brother, how you doing? Oh, I'm blessed and highly favored. That's a touch-up. That, that's a picture that just has been Photoshopped. Photoshop is a program in the industry that people use to beautify pictures and touch it up when you look on the magazine and say, well, I know Oprah's skin ain't that smooth. They photoshopped it. They took a brush and, and kind of blended in the rough spots with the smooth spots, and it all looks consistent. And that's what we try to do with our lives when we talk about Jesus. So we try to touch it up. So we have entered in through the gate and out into the pasture. Though the gate is straight, the freedom is broad. John chapter 10 says, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. So although the gate is narrow to get into the kingdom of God, once you're in the gate, our liberties just expand. They don't narrow. The tunnel vision that Christianity has taught us is such a narrow view. And we, we, we try to say that it's tight, but it's right. But he says that if you come in through me, you should go in the gate and then out into the freedom of the pasture and you'll have joy. If you think about the field, you, the, the gate is so narrow, but as soon as you get through the gate, 
This is why he says, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine, let us go on to perfection. But we're stuck at the gate. I don't know if any of you have seen a flock of animals, whether it's, it's sheep, they flock through and they're so tight and compacted. But as soon as they get through, you see this big wide of sheep and then they just go and run out into the pasture. This is the mindset that God gave us for our freedom in Christ. Yet we have tunnel vision, which is why we touch up the pictures of our lives. And everything becomes such a slogan. Back to the text. The Hebrew writer shows us the photo album of faith. The camera was aimed at an object that they couldn't see all that well. We're talking about the heroes of faith of chapter 11. Those are the, that's the great cloud of witnesses that he opens up with in chapter 12. What he's telling us is they all had one goal and that goal was Christ, but all of their testimonies were different, but their subject was the same. He gives us the surroundings of all the heroes of faith and tells us that they all were shooting the same object, although to them it was invisible. No matter what the scenery was, they were trying to capture Christ. That object came into focus when Christ came in the flesh. So he says here, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us. To lay aside, of course, we know means to cast off. It means to put down, to take off or to put away. The word every is actually more encompassing than we actually think. For this word every has a lot of meanings to it. It means all, the manner of, as in the means by which. It means always. It means anyone, whatsoever, whole, and whosoever. So it's not just, it doesn't just encompass a sin, but it encompasses a sin the timing, the place, the setting, the surrounding, that all of these things find themselves encamping around us. The word weight, lay aside every weight. It means a mass as bending or bulging by its load. It means a burden. Something that is so strong that it, it actually bends the object that it's on. It, it is stress. And too much stress will break you. Even some branches, they, they might be flexible to a certain point, but everybody has a limit. But Christ does not want us to ever get to the breaking point. This is why he says, cast our cares upon him. Luke 21 and 34 says, watch out. Don't let my sudden coming catch you unawares. Don't let me find you living in careless ease carousing and drinking and occupied with the problems of this life like all the rest of the world. Notice that our occupation with the problems of this life will cause us to miss the mark just as much as drinking and partying. We focus on the drinking and partying, but it's the cares of this life that are equally damaging to the spirit and the soul of man. The sin which easily besets us. Sin means offense or to miss the mark and consequently not share in the prize. And he says that these sins easily beset. The word beset actually means a competitor standing around, thwarting. See, the vices that we have, they linger around us. And they wait for the opportune moment to attack you, to attach themselves to us. It means to set or to stud with or as if with ornaments. This word be set. Ornaments. Whoever thought of sins or weights being an ornament? Because some people, they, they wear it on them. They wear their, their besetting sins and weights on them. It's, it's like their wardrobe now. When the Bible says to put on Christ, put on the garment of praise, 
But yet we, we ornament ourselves like a Christmas tree with the cares of this life. It means to trouble or to harass. The sins and the weights and the anxieties of our life, they harass us. They don't stop. They're always picking at your heels. They're always, it's like I have a, a brother who's, will not stop irritating you to the point of breaking. You know, you start off with a little joke, but you just got to keep on going. Until I, I'm, I'm, now I'm frazzled, I'm frustrated, and I'm ready to about knock you out. This is what our anxieties do to us, our sin. And then it also means to hem in, this word beset. You feel hemmed in. This is why when people get to a certain point in their life, it's so easy to go to that particular vice because they've been hemmed in. How do we lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us? How do we cast off the weights and the sins? Hebrews 10 and verse number 11 says, day after day, Every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. We say that Jesus is a burden bearer heart fixer, mind regulator. But a lot of the times we don't actually take it to him. This is no magical thing. You, you got to come to him and lay it at his feet. You got to lay it down. Second Corinthians 10 and 4 says, the tools of our trade aren't for marketing or manipulation. That's the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. <laughs> the tools of our trade, they are not for marketing and they're not for, for manipulation. Anytime the word of God seems like a market scheme to you, it seems like a commercial. It seems like a selling point. And it seems like something to, to, to manipulate your mind then it's not being rightly divided. Watch out. But our tools are for demolishing that entire massively corrupt culture. We use our powerful God tools for smashing warped philosophies, tearing down barriers erected against the truth of God, fitting every loose thought and emotion and impulse into the structure of life shaped by Christ. Our tools are ready at hand for clearing the ground of every obstruction and building lives of obedience into maturity. This is the weapons that we are to fight with. He gives us this in order to hone in on the goal that he set before us. He said, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. The course is not set by the runners. Our individual course was set by the master. The path was set before us, not only in front of us, but actually before us. Because we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. He set the map out for your race long time ago. The path is smooth and it's straight. It doesn't have debris in it. The thing that will trip us up is the weight and the sin. It's not that the, the, the path is lumpy. The race, the course to the race is not lumpy because he said it. He already ran it. And when he ran it, he moved every stumbling block out of your way. So the thing that trips you up is the weight that you put on yourself. Isaiah 45 and 2 says, 
I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places. That thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. He said, I'm going to go before you and I'm going to create the path. If it's crooked, I'll make it straight. If it's rough, I'll make it smooth. It's not hard being saved. Not when he didn't, did all this for us. At the threat of a snowstorm, when it rains in L.A. and it gets to a certain temperature, we live in the high desert. It may snow up there. Even though snow is not falling, the snow plows are out on the freeway. They're ready to clear your path for you. Jesus does the same thing for our tests and trials. Like I said, he made the devil come to him for a permit and made him put the exit in the building before he built your test and trial for you. And if the race goes into the night hours, he gives us two sources of light. Psalm 19, 119, 105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Why would we need two lights? Because one is attached to the way he set and the other is attached to you. So if you get off of his path, you still got light attached to you. He will never leave you in darkness. Even if you deter from the path. He does not want to allow us to mess up his plan. So he gives us light on our feet so we can find our way back to the lighted path. So not only is the path lit, but our feet are lit also. Then he says, we are to run with patience. You're not trying to get there in a hurry to see who gets there the fastest. Because the race is not given to the swift nor to the strong but it's to the one that endures to the end your goal is simply to cross the finish line not faster than somebody else not before or in better time of somebody else because in heaven I don't think that the crowns will have time clocks on them this one made it in 35 years and, and 26 days and this one made it in two days and five hours the goal is that we make it. When people run a marathon, they don't stop the race when, one, when the first, second, and third place are, are filled. The rest of them keep on running. They finish it. If they're 467th, they finish the race. See, we brought that competitive spirit into our Christian walk. So here's the key to victory. There's three things he tells us to look at. Number one, look at the winners. Number two, look at yourself. And number three, look at Jesus. He has given them all of the heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. He says, look at them. Look what they did. Then he tells and put the focus on you. Now look at yourself and see how you compare to them. They all died in the faith, not having received the promise. Because they were waiting for something far better than what they had. Now I want you to look and see how you're running. Because you have something that they don't have. And then I want you to look at Christ and see what he did. So look at the winners. Romans 15 and 4 says, for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we might through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. The word patience in this verse actually means endurance. And the word comfort means encouragement. If you're having problems with your family, read about Joseph. If you think your job is too big for you, study the life of Moses. If you are tempted to retaliate, 
See how David handled his problem. So these things were written in the Old Testament afore time so that we might be able to have a little solace in our situation. See, the one thing that the devil wants to do to us is he wants us to think that we're the only ones going through certain situations and that nobody understands us. If he could get you there, then you'll be prone not to discuss your situation with anybody. Now he's isolated you. And an isolated life is not what we're called to have in Christ. We're called to a body of Christ where we can confess our faults to one another and pray for one another and be healed. But all of these things were written so that we might be able to have endurance and encouragement. There's some about hearing stories that, that, that encourage you and say, man, they went through that. I could do that. And she talked about Paul. And to write letters to the church. He's the one being whipped in prison, left for dead, no food to eat, no clothes to wear, and he tells them to be happy and rejoice. You would think they'd be the one writing to him, telling him to rejoice. But they have freedom and food on the table and clothes on their back and, and meeting and having prayer meeting in the house, and, and he tells them rejoice, and again I say rejoice. It takes a certain type of focus. After we look at the winners, then we look at ourselves. And also, when you study biblical characters, the Bible gives us both sides. It tells us their accolades and it gives us their faults. It also it gives us their their faults for the same reason it gives us the accolades. So they, we might be able to endure and be encouraged not to make the same foolish mistakes that they made. So you can't always this. This is why tunnel vision is so dangerous. You extract that extract that little part out and then the rest of the circles black. You have no idea what the whole story encompassed or what it was all about. So we pull out the good part, but don't look at the bad part. So I said, we got to capture the good, the bad, and the ugly. In your photo album, every photo is not a happy time. I have photos of, of being at funerals. That wasn't a joyous time. Then I have some of weddings. Then I have some of birthday parties. You have good, you have bad, and you got the ugly times. Then we look at ourselves. What weights and sins are you vulnerable to? When she talked about he that hungers and thirsts after righteousness shall be filled. And she talks about the desire. That thing that you just have to have or you'll die. And the question is, what are your strongest desires? Are they for righteousness? Or are some other desires still taking precedence over those that you have for righteousness and for holiness? This is not to say that we're perfect and that we've, we've reached it. We're, we're still in the process of being made and created and shaped into his image. But these are the questions that we got to ask along the way to see if we're really in step with him. Examine ourselves to see if we're really in the faith or out of the faith. So we got to honestly answer what weights and sins are we personally vulnerable to? God is a very... Uh, intricate guy he deals with the fine and minute details he just didn't say okay yeah you say he said but I want to work on this issue and I want to work on that issue and I want to help you understand why you do this and why you don't do this and if we listen close enough we might be able to be helped but when our focus is on another man and trying to be like another man or woman then God can't work on us the way he wants us to so as we look at the winners, we don't try to imitate the winners. We simply see the mindset that they had, the focus that they had, and the confidence that they had in God to bring them through. And whatever weights and sins that you are vulnerable to, no one can strip them off but you. He says, let us lay aside. He didn't say come to us so we can pull them off of you. You have to willingly lay the stuff down. So Jesus is waiting for you to place his enemies at his feet. I'll go back and read that scripture. 
2 Corinthians 10. I'm sorry, no, Hebrews 10 and 11. The latter part, later down the line, he says, But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he is set down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Now, we are taught that when Jesus died on the cross, he actually took the keys of hell and death. If he received all of the power then, and he said it, all power is mine in heaven and in earth, then what enemies are he, is he waiting for to be made his footstool right now? It's the ones that easily beset us. He's not going to strip them from us. He wants us to take them off and lay them down at his feet. He's in heaven, but he's waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. That's your job. That's my job. Because they're not his footstool until they're made his footstools. And they're made his footstools when we bring them down and the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty to God to the bringing down of strongholds. Those are the tools that he gave us to lay his enemies at his feet. Then we are to look at Jesus. He is the author and the finisher of our faith and everything in between. So we can't just say the Alpha and the Omega, but all in between. See, we, we like to to say that he's the Alpha and the Omega, but in the middle, we mess it all up. I guess a, a better rendition would be he's the Alpha through Omega. He's the author through the finisher of our faith. Then the message translation says, look unto Jesus, who's the author and the finisher of our faith. Study how he did it. Can you imagine how powerful that little phrase is study how he did it study how he prayed study how he cried he wept he cried for Lazarus he wept in front of the people study how he rejoiced study his associations study who he talked to the ones that he was prone to go up and to just spark a conversation with. Study his silence. Because there's sometimes when we just need to shut up. Study his heartbreaks. Study when Jesus was disappointed. Study the things that made him sad. If we, if we study all of these aspects of what Jesus went through, then we would have ammunition to deal with life much better than we deal with it today. The problem is we only hear what certain men and women that we know about did. We only hear about what mama did. Well, maybe what mama did wasn't the right thing. We are to mark the perfect man, and that would be Jesus Christ. The word unto, he says to, not to look toward, but, but to look unto. As though it is far off. It isn't within us per se, but our victory is won by tapping into that which is greater than ourselves. The big picture. Let's read Philippians 3 verse 2. It says, steer clear of the barking dogs. Those religious busybodies all bark and no bite. All they're interested in is appearances. Knife-happy circumcisers. They're knife-happy. They love just to cut stuff off. You can't do that. Can't go here. Can't wear that. As soon as I walk through the door, I just was introduced to Christ, who Christ is. But he says they're barking dogs and they're religious busybodies. They have bark, but no bite. And they're interested in appearances. Knife-happy circumcisers, I call them. The real believers are the ones the Spirit of God leads to work away at this ministry. 
filling the air with Christ's praise as we do it. We couldn't carry this off by our own efforts, and we know it. Even though we can list what many might think are impressive credentials, you know my pedigree. This is Paul talking. A legitimate birth, circumcised on the eighth day, an Israelite from the elite tribe of Benjamin, a strict and devout adherent to God's law, a fiery defender of the purity of my religion, even to the point of persecuting Christians, a meticulous observer of everything set down in God's law book. He said, as concerning the law, I was perfect. This is Paul. The very credentials that these people are waving around as something special, I'm tearing up and throwing out with the trash, along with everything else I used to take credit for. And why? Because of Christ. Yes, all the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life. Compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master firsthand, everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant. It's dog dung. I've dumped it all in the trash so that I could embrace Christ and be embraced by him. See, we want to embrace Christ, but in order for him to embrace us, there has to be a letting go of our self-righteousness, of our sin, of our burdens. Because he has no fellowship with that. I didn't want some pretty inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules when I could get the robust kind that comes from trusting Christ, God's righteousness. Why would I want the kind that just binds me stronger and puts chains on me when I can have this life of freedom in Christ, when, actually, when I can actually go through the gate and find freedom in the pasture? You don't see the shepherd lead them through the gate and then tell them, oh, you can only go to this little section over here. He lets them run free. He said, I didn't want some pretty, I'm sorry, I didn't want some petty inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules when I could get the robust kind that comes from trusting Christ and God's righteousness. Paul had lived a life full of just rules. And when we read the scripture, forgetting those things which are behind, I press toward the mark. The things that he was leaving behind was the pedigree he's talking about here. He wasn't talking about your tests and trials for you to say, well, if you were molested at eight years old, you just got to get over it. You don't get over something that's a part of you. The things that Paul left behind were, his, were the self-righteous things. We got to put it in perspective. We got to read the scriptures in their context. Because when we don't, when we don't rightly represent it, he's not pleased. So he says in verse number 10, I gave up all that inferior stuff so I could know Christ personally, experience his resurrection power, be a partner in his suffering and go all the way with him to death itself. If there was any way to get in on the resurrection from the dead, I wanted to do it. So he says, oh, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his suffering. We want the resurrection, but we don't want the death. Jesus did not use divine powers in his test and trials. He used his faith. We got to study how Jesus did it. He didn't will his divine side in his test and trials. When the devil came to him, he had the power to send the devil straight to the pit right then. But he simply just rejected him. He was showing us what to do. So this super spiritual thing don't work over here because Jesus was not super spiritual. And he is the spirit that created all things. That which he knew from the word of God comforted him in the dark hour. It encouraged him. He quoted the word. He turned to the word. 
Jesus knew that he would defy death. But he laid himself out there anyway. He knew he, knew he was going to defy it because Psalm 16 and 8 said, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also shall rest in hope, for thou will not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou will show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy, and at thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. The joy that was set before him was that the fact that he knew where he stood from a scriptural stance. He also knew that he would be exalted to heaven. Psalm 110 says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Isn't that what the scripture we just read in Hebrews 10 said? He gave the sacrifice, got raised up from the dead, went and sat as God on the throne with the prerogatives of God, has the judgment of God, and yet he's waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. He says, for thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we must run the race that is set before us. Jesus considered the joy that was set before him. So much is written about Israel looking back and going back. Their minds were constantly, we should go back. We should go back. We should have went back. But he says there was a joy set before Christ and there's a race set before us. Paul wrote that God has no pleasure in those who draw back unto perdition, but look forward to their deliverance. Don't let the enemy cause you to draw back. We have to be careful of our pondering, how we entertain certain thoughts. We must look at our past with a Romans 8 and 28 mindset. When we look at it, we got to realize that those things in the past, somehow God's going to mix a new grace with that old experience that the outcome will be for my good. Then we got to remember Lot's wife. One of the shortest scriptures in the Bible, other than Jesus wept, is remember Lot's wife. We can't look back and have a reverence and an admiration for those things that Jesus wants to take away from us. Peter defied the laws of gravity as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, who was in front of him. When he said, Lord, if it's really you, then let me step out on the water. If it's really you and you have power to stand on the storm that's crushing me, the storm that I think is about to take my life, you're just walking right on it as if it's not there. He said, if it's really you, let me do the same thing. We have power to walk on top of the storms that we go through in life as if it's nothing. Then we have the butt experience. So what the storm is raging? The wind's blowing. As long as Jesus, we keep our eyes on him, we can step out of the ship and stop trusting in the ship to be our safety and realize that all of your safety is on who you focus your attention on. We have a lot of confidence in the ship, the program, the several bodies of doctrine have become our safety. When under it all, Jesus says, look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be saved. Look to me. Don't look to the Pharisees. Don't look to the Sadducees. Don't look to the Church of God in Christ, the Methodist, the Baptist, the Pentecostal, the Apostolic. Look unto me. Because everybody has a tendency to go off course. It's time to get out the ship. 
and step on your test and your trial with Jesus. And you will be able to stay on top of it as long as you don't take your eyes off of it. When Peter looked away because of the intimidation of the wind and the storm, he allowed that to become bigger than Jesus. And when we fear, when we fret, when we worry, we're saying that this is bigger than you, Lord. That's really what we're telling them. You can't handle this. God has given us power to defy the natural things of your circumstance, tests, and trials, those things in life. Peter stood, did something that humans just are not allowed to do. <laughs> the laws of science go against it. Because if what Peter did is the norm, we wouldn't have swimming. We wouldn't have diving. You would be incapable of going underwater. But with Jesus, with Jesus, all things are possible. 2 Timothy 2 and 12 says, If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he'll deny us. If we refuse to place our focus on him, and when you take Jesus, you can't take him with tunnel vision, but you got to take him with the entire package. Peter had to say yes to the entire package. Ananias said, there's no way, I, I, I didn't mean Peter, I meant Paul. He had to take the entire package. When God went to Ananias and said, I want you to receive Saul. Ananias said, I'm not receiving that man. He's killing us. <laughs> this man wants to kill me. He says, don't worry about him. He said, I've already showed him what great things he's going to suffer for my name's sake. Wait a second. You showed him that he was going to suffer and he still said yes. Because the suffering of Christ meant that he would take part in the resurrection. Oh, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. But if I want to get up with him, I got to go down with him. The streets have this mentality. It's ride or die. They stick with each other to the end. I've seen more of that in the streets than in the church. Folk leave you dry in the church. Well, I know they wasn't no good in the first place. I, I figured that was true. Wait a second, you were just, <laughs> just with me a minute ago. But don't we do it to Jesus? Don't we at the first opportunity, when Peter said, I would never deny you. No, uh-uh. He said, oh, you're, for the next morning, Peter, you'll do it not only once, not only twice, but you will have done it three times. Now, Christ, the scripture says, if we deny him, he'll deny us. Well, why didn't he deny Peter? Because he had already covered Peter. He said, but when you're converted, strengthen the brother." And that Peter, with that mentality, is the same one we read about last night, who went to sleep, got undressed, laid down and went to sleep, and was being executed in a few hours. The one who, when they came to get Jesus, he pulled out his swords and took a man's ear off. Now he just lays there. Do what you want. When are we going to stop fighting? It's not the fight. You, you got to have your mind focused on Jesus in order to win this. This is not given. You can't fight a spiritual war with a carnal mentality. 
He's waiting for your enemies to be placed at his feet. And instead of placing them at his feet, we're racking up more. We are secretly gathering more enemies of Jesus Christ to beset us around. But the Message Bible translation says, enough of this. Strip down. Take this junk off. The one you need is in heaven waiting for you to get to him. But you keep putting on more stuff that'll slow you down, slow you down, take you longer to get there. Make it harder for you to get there. It makes you cramp up faster when you weigh down. Faith. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. Not just the faith of the church, but the summary of faith, which lies in the heroes of faith outlined in chapter 11, and the faith of Jesus joined to the faith of the church. What you have to realize about the sacrifice of Christ, when he died, the Bible says that the Old Testament saints will not be perfected without us. His blood actually made everybody righteous who was obedient to the sacrifices of the Old Testament. His blood was applied to them when he shed it. And then it reached toward the church and all of those in the future, even in the tribulation and the millennial period, his blood reaches through all of that. And here we are, we didn't put a corner on God's blood. When it stretched back and then went forward. So when he says he's the author and the finisher of our faith, the faith that was at the beginning, you're Abraham's child. The father of faith. It is the faith which was passed on as a baton in this race. And when Jesus gave it to us, it was perfected. The baton wasn't a doctrine. The baton that Jesus gave us was faith. But when he handed it to us, it was perfect. There was nothing to grow in it. You have what you need. The blessing of the Lord, it maketh rich. And he added no sorrow to it. That term, he added no sorrow to it, means that there's nothing that you can do to enhance it. You can't work to improve it. You can't take the faith of Christ and put it in a stock market and try to make more money off of it. It's already at its fullest potential that it will ever grow to. But what do we do? We take the faith and say, okay, now I got to add this and I can do this a little better and I can go and I can't, I won't go there and then I'll refrain myself from doing this. And we add. And she went over the only thing that we're instructed to add to our faith. But we add all the other little things. We add all the stuff that Paul says is trash. Why do we do this to ourselves? But we do. We, we are our own worst enemies. If we could just grasp this, our lives would be so much more intense with Christ. We could live a blessed life 